I'm looking for similarities in the way troublemakers think. This is Steve St. Clair, co-founder of Trouble Group. Join us as we learn from others who are shaking things up. I interview CEOs who have disruptive solutions or products. My listeners are going to begin to hear a more pointed theme develop today and moving forward. I want to spend more time exploring what it takes to build and nurture an entire culture of disruption inside of a company. Fittingly, my next guest's LinkedIn profile says, quote, lifelong disruptor, entrepreneur, and hemp industry expert, end quote. Greg Kerber is CEO of Gnome Serum, a consumer goods company focusing on innovating a unique portfolio of premium products containing full-spectrum hemp extract and sustainable ingredients. Greg, you're going to fit right in. Awesome. Welcome to Troublemakers. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I uh, look forward to this uh, this interview. So, And I should point out, Greg is also, like me, using a Rode microphone, which is the best on the planet. And it, So they say, so they say, yeah. yep. Coming through loud and clear. And coming through yeah. from where, Greg? Right now, I'm in Albany, New York, and had taken a, uh, a few extra days for the holiday. So it's just here before the 4th that I took Friday. Sort of, you never take it the day off, right? But Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks thanks for uh, carving out some time for this podcast. I really oh, appreciate yeah. it. No, I, love to, I love to talk about myself. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, Greg, you've had a very interesting career path. Let's, let's hear a bit about that, and especially something called Rad Soap. Yeah, I um, I actually was a banker. Uh, that's where I started out my life. And so what did I do? I went around to small businesses and um, uh, figured out how to get them financed, which was in the world of finance, there's not a lot of creativity, I would say, but we somehow we managed, I managed to uh, do a lot of creative things in finance. And uh, we did everything from real estate financing to corporate restructure to uh, rolling stock and asset, re-asset, uh, repurposing assets and everything you can imagine in the world of finance. And it, it, that there was a change in my career when I got involved and, and started to look at a thing called the internet. And that really started to change, change my career. So I was involved in a lot of things on the technology end, but what it ultimately, when you talk about rad soap, that was a, uh, a, a business venture that my uh, ex-wife had wanted to start. And it was a, her, my son had had bad eczema and she had built some products around that. One was a cream and it was very successful. And the interesting part about that whole thing was it was um, hemp and my sons were involved in the, the beginning of that project. And um Hemp at the time, 15, 17 years ago, however long it was we started that, was considered cannabis by most people. They didn't know there was a difference. Right. Uh, and I, and I won't for, I'll never forget the first time we, we did a show where we, we went and sold our products like farmers markets and things. And we were pretty much in your face with it. We had taken advantage of the provocativeness of that uh, cannabis plant versus the hemp plant. And we, we used it an awful lot in our marketing to get people's attention. It was risky, no doubt. We had people that were upset with us that we were um, pushing a drug culture 
And uh, we ended up uh, becoming known, the Rad Soap Company founded, uh, built literally in a kitchen sink, became known as the Hippie Soap Company. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, highly successful company that my uh, ex-wife and, and my two sons run today. And uh, it, it goes back to everything there has hemp in it. And it was really my sons who started, you know, this is, this is something we believe where the future is. And they were on the money on that. And we did a lot of crazy, crazy things uh, to promote that company. And it all proved, a lot of it proved to be very good. Talk about in your face, disrupting. Uh, it was, because uh, at the time, uh, cannabis was considered, still is by the federal government, a Schedule One narcotic. And we were definitely utilizing that to create controversy around the product. And it was at a time I had done some work in ad agencies and some other things prior to this. It was at a time when there was a trend going forward that we could see in consumer products where consumers just didn't trust large institutions at all from religion to government to these big companies. And so there was an opportunity to expand on that and kind of lean on local products, lean on family-owned business, lean on things that created a trusted source in the consumer's mind. And those were the things that we capitalized on. And we capitalized on the opportunity that the world was changing pretty significantly at that point. So, but there was, there was some uniqueness even in the formulation of rad soap, right? Yes. So when you look at the concept of a soap, what you're doing is you're taking acids and a base, you're throwing them together, and it's a pretty violent process. Molecularly, it smashes around and creates a thing called saponification. The problem with that is when that's all happening – you're also dumping all the ingredients in at the same time. So those ingredients are f- affected by this molecular windstorm that's occurring. And so <laughs> they, uh, you lose a lot. You, it, it dissipates. Scent dissipates. There's a lot of times you'll buy soaps that are natural. And it takes seven weeks for them to become, go from this acid base to, to a product that's completed. And during that process... Uh, because of saponification, it, you lose stuff. It's it just it, it, the molecular components of it can't hold together and you lose some scent and you, that dissipates and you lose some of the benefits of the organics. So what we had done was we had created, and it takes seven weeks. So when you're in need of money, you're waiting seven weeks to turn inventory. That's not such a cool thing to have happen. So what we, uh, what we figured, one, out of necessity because we needed money, and two, just to be able to keep up with inventory and not manage a seven week thing, which was just a major pain in the butt. We came up with a way to make soap in 45 seconds. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and so a lot of that was just out of necessity, but you know what happened was when you looked at the benefit of that soap, we were able to figure out and understand that once we put the organics and the things in that were added benefit to, uh, to your epiderm, your skin, we realized that we had created something pretty unique. And Sue, my ex at the time, she was like, hey, I want that to smell right to the very end, that little chunk that you throw in the toilet or it gets flushed down the sink, or I want 
shocked at the smell the whole time. And we achieved that because once we added essential oils and other products into that soap, it stuck to it. it there was no, there was, there was nothing. It got encapsulated in the soap. There were the chemical process and change from a base and acid into soap had stopped. And it was a soap the minute we did that. So we ended up bringing a very unique product to the market. It's unique in itself today. My sons have just done a way better job even marketing it and getting it out there. And it truly affects your skin in a very positive way. And that was the whole thing with, you talk about disrupting. Soap's a pretty difficult business in that there's a lot of it. We were able to become a national brand with that. And it was primarily because we did everything that was outside the box. We were constantly pushing that envelope between marketing and what we did at events. And we were just in a constant, you know, that we were that spoiled kid in the corner screaming to get their parents' attention. <laughs> and it works. And it works. It's a very... I have a friend who calls it badassery. <laughs> I think that defines it well. There you go. Badassery would be the exact... Uh, the exact right thing for that. And, and today they're an extremely successful company and they've, you know, they've proven it just uh, where they're at. Or they've been in everything from Urban Outfitter to Whole Foods. So. Oh, wow. That's huge. Yeah. Yep. So, Greg, from a high level, what's happening in the hemp industry these days? I'm hearing all these new things coming, even uh, like graphene and all this other stuff that just sounds amazing to me. Yeah, well, so the hemp industry is going through its a major shake out. I've been to hemp farms around the country where you walk into their curing rooms and you see hemp piled to the sky that's never, ever going to get used. So the hemp industry, like everything, like the gold rush and everything else, a lot of pitchforks and, and shovels have been sold, but a lot of fortunes, yeah. I wouldn't say, have necessarily been founded in it. And so there's a lot of things there, you know, between genetics, which if you start right at the soil seed thing, there's a lot of things going on in the genetics world, just trying to maximize the hemp plant. Understanding that when I started Gnome Serum, it was, there was only 102 companies at the time. By the time pre-COVID, we had 5,000 companies. Wow. Fortunately, we got on the bottom floor of that. And we created a brand that was enduring and got out there. And we went to the rebels in the industry. We went to the disruptors in grocery. We went to the disruptors in fashion. We went to those folks who were similar mindset as we are, and we're willing to take that risk. And we're smart enough to recognize, hey, this is something that's not going away. And I know that I need to be the first one there to get on board with it. Because once I do, I've got a consumer that's going to repeat every 30 days or every 60 days, whatever their practice was for health. So that was kind of where it was, uh, you know, two years ago, 36 months ago, pre-COVID. And a multitude of factors have affected the industry. One being obviously a shutdown across the country that, that, that had a dramatic effect. We sell a lot in New York City a lot of those stores were either closed and some of the bigger grocery stores, uh, when I say groceries, co-ops and things like that, Park Slope co-ops, a place where we sell our stuff. Uh, they were only allowed to put 20% of what the full capacity of the store was. Say your capacity was 100 people, you can only put 20 people in at a time. And the, kind of, the whole component of spontaneous purchasing wasn't occurring because people were just getting in, getting their stuff and then getting out. Yep. Bare essentials. 
Yeah, you didn't have the luxury of looking around, kicking the tires or anything like that. And that was true throughout the industry. But so you go back to that's a that's one component, one variable involved. And I'd say the second uh, thing is just there was a glut of hemp. I mean, I can remember being with a farmer uh, on a giant, very large hemp farm. He's saying, well, that that field's worth a million bucks and that field's worth a million and a half. And that one's worth. And I can just remember we were kind of there. We knew what was going on. And I was just sitting there going, you know, that's a raw material. Now, you have to turn that raw material into something. And at the at this point, hemp's being used for oil mm-hmm. okay so you've right. got to turn it from that plant into an oil and then that oil has to be processed it has to be tested coas which are certificate of authenticity to make sure there's nothing in there that can harm a consumer blah 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 all these things have to happen and then it's got to get put into someone's hands like ours and then we have to put it into our consumer channel and i knew that there was a lot of hemp new york state had had a lot of farmers that we're getting on the gold rush, but we had seen this in Denver. We had seen this in California. We had seen this in other places before it came to New York. And it really just hit the whole United States at that level. We've seen a lot of bankruptcies. We've seen a lot of the manufacturing of, of the oils and other products that they, they were doing at, at those levels, the harvesters and then the, the squeezers, I call them weed squeezers. They just had overabundant amount of hemp. They still do warehouses full of it. And you started to see drop in consumption and you started to see the growth went way ahead of the consumption. They weren't looking at consumption of the product. It was a formula for unmitigated disaster. (laughs) So a lot of people got their heads handed to them. They didn't realize that, you know, it didn't take a whole lot to grow a hemp plant. Everybody could do it. And like all things, I believe it all comes down to manufactured products and brands. And that's really where on the battlefield of consumer driven products, that's where you win or lose. And that shook up the industry pretty significantly. We saw a lot of companies go out of business, a lot of bankruptcies just due to COVID. And then the consumers just weren't going to the market. We saw our internet definitely increase. So people just switched their purchasing habits. But for the most part, we just saw a, a dynamic change all occurring at the same time. And we had to try and figure, sort it out and figure out what was really going on industry-wise, what was COVID, what was all of those things and how that affected the consumer's view of products and how it, they were going to purchase purchasing habits. And uh, it, was a, it was pretty significant. So Greg, how and when did you realize you were a disruptor? I have the feeling with you, it was in the womb. <laughs> <laughs> I just think I go back to my mother, right? You were you were a difficult child. I, I think probably at, at that point. Um, you know, I, I think what happens, unfortunately, with people like me, uh, you have a high level of curiosity, yeah. and so that high level of curiosity. Uh, creates either good or bad things. It just depends on where you put the energy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, when you're young, it's good and bad. So, But uh, as you get older, you realize you better put it in a real positive direction. And um, I, I think I was probably in banking, I, I think, because we, we were trying to come up with creative ways to finance uh, problem projects where, you know, there was, uh, I talk about formulas, where formula 
where there was inventory that may have been out a little whack and there have been assets and we were everything was based like say on 80 percent of assets or whatever and we'd have to try and figure out how to get the proper funding and it was usually pretty good reasons why they were out of whack but we had to come up with creative ways to do yeah. that uh you know, I was there during asset securitization um, on commercial. That was well known in, in the world of residential mortgages through FDA. But then Wall Street came to town. This was probably around 1985. Um, and, you know, I was there when that started, when the asset securitization started and the rating agencies got involved and they did all this thing called tranching bonds and you know they had triple a here and then it went all the way down to b-rated credit and it was crazy crazy right. stuff but it was you know the market's an interesting place um the consumer is an interesting uh the consumer power is interesting and when there's a need uh i think you need kind of disruptors to fulfill that need whether it's a product or a service or I think what disruptors do is they look at something that people don't even know that they need. CBD would be one of them. Yep. And they don't know that they need it. And we create the awareness of these products that it, it, it really encourages and gives the consumer information they need to make a decision about everything from, you know, whether they like the taste of something or, hey, this could help make your life better for a whole host of reasons. So, but I, I probably knew, I didn't really understand that until I had built a, a network that was a significant network. It was when you talk about blockchain today, everybody talks about blockchain. Yep. We had created the first real blockchain technology on a peer network. And it was at that point, I walked into a movie studio and they said, oh, you're a white hat, you're a white hat disruptor. <laughs> <laughs> I've never As heard that. To one. Black Hat Disruptor, which was uh, Sean Fanning at the time. It was <laughs> at that point that I was like, oh, interesting. You know, you, 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 just, got, uh, you just got pigeonholed by uh, a studio executive as to what I was. So it was, it was an interesting thing. But I had gotten called that quite a few times in that industry. Yeah. And I guess that's when I realized my curiosity as a, I, I just as a human being, I think, was at a real peak level. And I always was wondering why this couldn't be done or why that couldn't be done or, you know, ask those questions, right? Why, why, why can't it be done? And as you probably well know, you're a podcaster and uh, you know how much trouble that can get you in. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so is it possible to build a culture of innovation, a culture of disruptive people? Yeah, but I don't think it's easy. Because here's what happens. I, I've seen it. I, I, I can see it recently. I'm not going to mention name of, names of companies, but uh, I recently was talking to a company that's pretty well established, but a, a complete disruptor in its time. And it's, it's like when we grow old, I guess, right? We, we sit there and uh, we take all those risks in the beginning. And then as time goes on, we're, we're more risk adverse, right? Because you don't want to disrupt this thing that you've created uh, you want right. to keep smoking along and growing, even if it's just minimal growth, you're, you're going to kind of keep it at that. So yeah. I think that companies are very similar. What people do um, is they uh, get to a certain, they take all that risk and do all this crazy, crazy, crazy things. And a couple of things happen. One, you don't want to take the risk anymore. 
you've got a market, you've got growth you can live with, and you end up uh, just kind of settling for the situation you're in there. The second part of that is your same situation, basically, but someone, a larger company wants to come in and purchase you. It's probably publicly traded or should be or almost publicly traded. And they certainly don't want any risk either. And they're just going to cut a three-year right. deal with you. And then, you know, you're off to Bermuda or Hawaii to live the rest of your life. I think that um, the there's industries, you know, who's probably a great, a really great disruptor was Steve Jobs, as much as I didn't care for yes. him as a human being. But he was, um, he was, he was pretty innovative. I mean, he took a lot of risks. If you really look at him, he was not in the club. He was not Bill Gates. Um, mm -hmm. He was outside the club and he was pretty innovative and he was willing to take those risks. And I had competed with him in the digital world when we were there. And he was also a ferocious human being as far as competition was concerned. So I think that, yeah, I think it's hard to keep a company innovative. I mean, would I say Apple's innovative today? Absolutely not. Um, right. I think that went away with him. But it, Pixar, for instance, absolutely was an innovative, gave us some yep. unbelievable things that are iconic in our culture. That's gone too. So I don't know that it has sustainability. And it's very difficult to be swimming upstream with 10 pound weights on your arms and legs, uh, <laughs> fighting a current. And so sometimes yes. it's just like, ah, you know, I, I don't, I don't want that uh, risk. I mean, I, I kind of see it myself a little bit right now, looking at the cannabis industry, we're going to do three dispensaries in New York. You, you, you get, you get a little bit, you know, you get a little bit different. You got to have that energy level. You got to go in and, and uh, you know, be willing to take the risks and deal with the change and deal with the things that work and deal with the things that don't work. And there's just a lot of, there's a lot of variables that tear at all parts of you when you're, you know, when you are disruptive and, and doing those things. And I think it comes with who you surround yourself with. Too. Absolutely. But I think one of the things companies do that really mess up their culture is just, we go right back to what we just talked about is it's okay to make a mistake. Yeah. You know, yes. I, I'm not talking about ridiculous mistakes where you, you know, drive a freight train off, uh, off the tracks. Cause it's you're right. doing a hundred and a 40. I'm talking about where you products and you try something just a little crazy. You know what? The person who's willing to do that eventually is going to create a great product for you. It's going to create a great idea for you. Yep. You hired them for a reason to begin with. Uh, you hired them for a reason because they, they had a similar cultural attitude. And so it's really important to maintain that and, you know, don't beat up on your employees when they make mistakes. So what were some challenges you had? I'll tell you, one of the biggest challenges was worried that the DEA was going to kick the door in on us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How did that work out? <laughs> uh, you know, that was just, uh, oh, my God, that, that was one of the big fears was that, oh, you know, because the, the, the whole, listen, we all, know, we all knew that the farm bill was going to pass and we knew the hemp was going to become not a, a, a Schedule One narcotic, ridiculous that it ever was. You know, when you know the story behind that, it was all the Carnegies and the DuPonts that created this drug, you know, this drug culture. 
you know, that was the first challenge was that we were dealing with what was considered by the federal government as Schedule One narcotic. You couldn't get banking. Banks would do it in the beginning and then. That's still a challenge. Yeah, and it's still a challenge. It absolutely is. Couldn't get credit card companies to execute things. I, I can remember spending most of the summer in my first year in business, and I'm a banker, I've got a banker's background, uh, dealing with banks, getting people to you know, see their way to do this industry. And really, uh, there, was, there wasn't anything, as persuasive as you might think there was, there wasn't anything I could convince them of. It wasn't until New York created a law that if you were a chartered New York State bank, the federal, they gave exemption to those banks so that they could bank the hemp industry. So that was okay. something that happened that was pretty positive that New York did. New York's been pretty innovative. We'll have, to, we'll have to see with what happens with this cannabis industry. But the challenge was that, I mean, it was, there was a little bit of a component of a, you know, bootlegging, I guess, would be the best way to describe it, where you were. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Virginia. I can identify. Yeah, you that. know what I'm so. talking about, right? The whole NASCAR <laughs> thing, if you know about that. I mean, that's how NASCAR started. They were yep. trying to rev up cars and go faster than cop cars. And then they decided it was probably easier to race cars than race cops with moonshine in it. And that's what created NASCAR. But the whole thing was, yeah, it was it was a little challenging in that uh, whole thing. It was a little scary. And, and I can remember my partner at the time when I was talking to him about this industry and we got started and I kept having the banks shut me down. I had credit card companies and, I, you know, I'd go to me and say, hey, this just happened. That just happened. And all he did was look at me and says, you know what? You're the right man for the <laughs> That's job. That's great. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, God. I, you know, at the time, I just, it reminded me of a lot of other things that have happened in other industries I was in. But yeah, yeah it, 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 that was one thing. Banking was another thing. Listen, they, they were trying to, uh, the pharmaceutical industry had a major problem with what we were doing. And that's a whole other story. You know, there was just a lot of things working against you in the industry at all levels to try and stop it. And, you know, if one thing you know about the United States and the entrepreneurial spirit Forget about it. You're not going to stop anything. That's you right. Know, you really aren't. Yeah. Once entrepreneurs get the challenge, the only place on earth that that can happen is here in the United States. Maybe Australia, but right here in the United States, when, when you have that, when you are given the freedom we have here and the ability to go create things from a thought to an actual reality... That, that builds a whole different kind of person. As you probably know, you interview entrepreneurs. They're just, they're, they're a little crazy. They're, yep. uh, they're a little practical. They got like a, a little bits and pieces of a lot of things. And uh, that's what makes them unique in their ability to go out and decipher a market and go build products and services. What would you say to a up and coming entrepreneur? Well, I, I'll tell you something that I, I learned early on. You know, and everybody talks about this all the time, but I don't know that they ever give you the real, the real scoop on it. Um, you know, don't ever give up, whatever you do. You know, that whole thing, don't ever give up. Yeah. Well, I agree with that. Don't ever give up. I had a lot of people tell me a lot of things were bad ideas that ended up being great ideas. I also had a lot of things that I've done in my life. On the other side of that, which people told me they were bad ideas and I did them and they were bad ideas. Also, I had a lot of people say, great idea, and it ended up being a bad idea. So, you, you know, you're constantly in this. But it's so easy today in this marketplace in the United States. There are so many outlets to the consumer, okay? And if you think you have a good idea, 
I think one of the greatest things are farmers markets, flea markets, these these festivals. If you think you've got a great consumer product, go get everything that you need. You know, go go create a corporation or a DBA, get the product on, make sure you have your licensing, make sure you have all the things you need, put your product together, get it a name, throw a label on it and go to the market and, and start there. Before you go raise money, most everything you do to start a product can be done on a bootstrap budget. You can get it done, get it into the marketplace. Maybe, maybe you got to borrow a couple thousand dollars in credit cards, but go, go right into the market and figure out whether it's a good idea. Right. And if you can persuade a consumer to buy it and you can walk out of there and break even, you may be onto something. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think that's what I would tell young entrepreneurs, old entrepreneurs, people who think they've got something unique and something that's compelling and a story that consumers are going to uh, love. You know, in the United States of America, we love stories. And so you want to have a good story with your product. How did you come up with it? What happened? What were exactly the things you're talking about? But people want to know that. There's a reason Shark Tank is one of the largest watch series. Love that show. Yeah, yep. today, right to today. And it's because people look at that and everybody's had an idea in their life. Yep. And they've all thought about being in business. The difference is there's only a few of us crazy enough to do it. <laughs> so. There's two of them on this podcast. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Is there anyone out there who inspired you that you want to give a shout out to on this podcast? Because I'll, I'll, I'll well, get you it know, to you. You've, you've, I'll tell you about there's, there's probably, we were just talking about this the other day. Um, when you start out in business, you probably start out for um, probably wrong reasons or, you know, you end up as time goes on, it's the, 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 different reasons you evolve let's let's use that word right everybody uses that word so uh obviously your mother and father right they create either genetically or the way you were raised uh they create that whole um component of your your personality so that's kind of the structure of the building blocks of who you are then um a couple of things I, I, there was one gentleman by the name of gordon enfield he probably doesn't even know this but um, I can remember he, I was in a small town. My parents ran a store so that we always had kind of an entrepreneurial, uh, a general store in a small town in, uh, an agricultural area of New York state. And, uh, but he came to a, uh, back in the day when we had 4th of July picnics and you know, back when those things occurred in the United States yeah. and parades and Memorial day parades and fireworks and, you know, all the girls would get dressed up and all the guys would get dressed up and go to these events. And uh, but anyway, he would show up every year and he would drive this car. And I was like, wow, what, what the hell kind of car is that? And it was a Jaguar. <laughs> and I fell in love with the car. Never got one because then I found out they really yeah. sucked. They did at the time. <laughs> they did. You know? I remember the elect the electrical yeah, system. Yeah, just like, I'm not buying one. Once you get, you know, practical, you're like, yeah. I'm not buying one of those. And um uh, but it was like, oh, yeah, I really would like one of those cars. And I, I think that was really something that embedded itself in my head throughout my life. And it was one of the driving components of it. Oh, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, as you go through life, I think, you know, you have your parents, you have people, Gordon. And then as you 
mature, you know, I, th I think my kids too. I think my kids were very um, influential in my life to succeed. And uh, they were also creative people. So it was always good being around them because mm -hmm. they were, you know, the whole family was kind of creative and innovative. So there, uh, there's multitudes of people uh, at different phases in my life. I can tell, yeah, that was someone who really influenced me in a very positive way. Yeah, that's so, great. Yeah. Well, listen, Greg, thank you. This has been great. Yeah. I think it's um, I think it's great that you're doing this podcast. I think it's a great uh, service to people who are thinking about being in business. I, I, I really I always think when you can get advice from people who have been there, done it, it's always highly beneficial. I have been involved in a lot of things where I've helped out a lot of entrepreneurs. I think it's one of the most courageous things a person can do, you know, to set off for the Antarctic. It'll be dark, dreary nights. The chance of survival is zero. You know, the the uh, Ernest Shackleton. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that that spirit, I hope that that spirit in our country is never snuffed or delayed or people are feel that things are so hopeless that things can't happen. Dreams can't come true and all those wonderful things that we talk about. But I think it's really important to keep that innovation alive, not just at technology level, but at the consumer level. You know, whether it's a lollipop, you've got the greatest thing in lollipops and popsicles, or, you know, you got the next great corn chip. It's really important for us to constantly be pushing the envelope and making things better. Totally agree. Yeah. We'll talk soon, all right? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. This has been a Trouble Group podcast. Learn more about us at troublegroup.com. If you're a troublemaker and want to be on the podcast, email us at steve at troublegroup.com. Mm -hmm.